as Brad said, everyone, if you're with us for the first time, we are two weeks into a new series called Engage. And really, um, again, in a nutshell, what this series is all about is about how we, as God's people, engage with the world around us, particularly people who don't know Jesus, and how God has called us to go into the world and to be people who win people for Jesus, teaching them to obey Him and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and just really being deeply convicted that our call as God's people is to step out and to be salt and light, and we want to see more people coming to know Jesus. And so, and so this series is really about how uh, God has called us as His people to engage with the world around us. So John started off last week and he spoke about um, the unique role of the Holy Spirit in all of this. This week we're going to be touching on something a little bit different. Um, and in some ways it's quite challenging to preach on because it's, it's got to do with reshaping our perspective on what it means to suffer and how we should suffer when faced with persecution and the unrighteousness of people toward us when we share the gospel with them. And something really difficult to wrestle with. But that's what we're going to be unpacking this evening. Um, just wanted to start by sharing a story, which I think highlights a point that I'm going to try and hammer home this evening. But it's a story of when I was studying. Now, if you are studying or have studied, you'll know what I'm talking about. There comes a point in your studies where you just, you just don't want to study anymore. Like you just finished. It doesn't matter how exciting it was when it started. It doesn't matter how exciting uh, or how well you're doing or, or what you may be earning as a result of what you study in the future. You're just like, it's enough now, right? Come on. So I got to that point, and unfortunately for me, this, the institution that I was studying through didn't put at that time, didn't put a, a, like a time limit on how long you could take to do the degree. And some of you are like, yes, amen, that would be great. It doesn't really work out that well because some people legitimately had taken 10 years to do a three-year degree. I was on that road. I was probably going to do it in about 15 years. <laughs> Until one of the elders at the church that I'm originally from sat me down and just said to me, Roland, let me share this story with you about a similar situation I find myself in. Now, he was contracted by Eskim um, to build substations out in rural Transkai, um, and he was often frustrated and angry because his work just took so much time away from family, especially on a Friday, and so he would have to finish up work in the Transkai and either stay over in the Transkai or trek all the way back home, the three, four, five hours that it would be to go back home on a Friday to go and see his family, which he really wanted to do, and he said, there came a time where I just didn't want to do this work anymore, and I started to treat my staff terribly. I started to lament my job. I started to become ineffective. I started to hate Fridays, and eventually when I did get home, the very thing I wanted to do was be with my family. I couldn't do because they were terrified of me coming home because of the attitude I had when I came home and the, and the mood I was in, and I was just feeling not myself, and so I would go to bed, and it would take me half of Saturday to recover from my attitude, and he said until God spoke to him one day in the bush in the rural trans guy and he said simply put god just said to him this is what it is so suck it up and deal with it and he said he was really challenged because he got to think about his job a little bit differently and god said to him this thing is a blessing from me it's a means to an end but it is also a mission field for you and as he started to think about what he was doing the circumstances didn't change but his attitude did his attitude to his staff, his attitude to, to work, he still got home very late, but the attitude with which he came home had changed. The response of his family to him coming home changed, and God just taught him and me that day a very big lesson, because when I changed my attitude towards the studies, 
The fact that I had to study never changed, but how I accomplished it did. And it started to affect uh, people around me in a positive way. So I share that with you because it's a very powerful story in my life, and I never, ever forget it. But it sort of highlights the point here tonight that to overcome or to accomplish really difficult tasks, sometimes attitude is everything in order to get that done. And I just think about some of the overwhelming tasks we have as individuals. We know what God has called us to, but, but universally, God has given us a mandate and he's commissioned us to do something which apart from him is super overwhelming. And God tends to do that. He tends to call us to stuff that's way bigger than ourselves, but then equip us to do it as well. But it also requires an attitude that's right and godly from our side in order to be used by God properly. And just Matthew 28 is, is this commission. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. If you've ever thought about that, you'll, you'll understand just how overwhelming that task is, but God still calls us to do it. God says, go into all the world. Don't retaliate and fight against them. Don't, don't run away and hide, but engage with the world around you in a godly way. That's our mandate and that's our call. But, but here's where the issue and the challenge comes in for us. If you've ever shared the gospel with anybody and been rebuked, or if you've ever shared the gospel with anybody and, being, and, 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 and then as a result been scorned or mocked or persecuted, you'll know that your attitude comes under attack or your thought process and your heart comes under attack and you just want to retaliate in the flesh because they deserve it. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. When, when, when the gospel collides with, with, with unrepentant hearts and, and with the hearts of people who have not yet come to know Jesus, there's that moment where we are for them salt in a wound or light in the eyes of someone who's been in darkness for a long time and it's not always received that well. You don't even have to be directly preaching or ministering to somebody. You just have to be a Christian and you can be exposed to some ridicule and mockery. And it's in those times that our attitudes are tested. We know that our sinful nature, and I'm just, maybe it's just me, but I know that my sinful nature doesn't need any help in coming up with some really good ways of getting back at people. But we can actually become quite creative in getting back at people. But our responses are sort of, uh, at least for me, they've been like this. They include these things, but are not limited to stuff like bitterness when we face suffering for the sake of the gospel. We become bitter. We despair. We, we, we become angry. Right? With biting anger and fury, we become people who self-pity and we feel sorry for ourselves. Or, or resentment is something we carry in our hearts because this thing God has called us to do is, is really tough. But in the midst of suffering for the sake of the gospel, despite the fact it's difficult, God calls us to trade unrighteousness with righteousness. He calls us to trade evil with good. He calls us to trade hatred with love. He calls us to trade blessing with curse. That's what he calls us to. And I think the question for most people is, is why? Why does this happen? Why, why does this have to be our responsibility? And there are a number of reasons why. Just three. Quickly, though. One, it glorifies the nature and the character of God. Two, it's a life when lived properly brings 
blessing. And three, and more importantly for our context this morning, it is not what the world expects of us when they are persecuting us. I don't know if you've ever been in an argument with somebody and you have been furious and you have lost it and you've been shouting and you've been angry and you know you've been nasty and all of a sudden they respond with love and submission and respect and gratitude. It just breaks the wall. It just humbles you because it's not what you expect. You expect to go at it like this. And before they've even said anything, you've thought about what they're going to say and you've got an answer for it already. And that's what the world expects when they persecute. But when Christians respond in a godly way, they don't expect it. And it gets to ask, it gets them to begin to ask questions about the faith and the hope that we have. And so this is what Peter, in the book of Peter, chapter 3, 8 to 17, starts to encourage us with. In fact, he unpacks this and he goes, this is how a Christian responds to suffering and persecution. This is how you respond to tough times for preaching the gospel. This is not talking about dealing with the loss of a loved one or grieving in some way, not suffering in that way. This is not talking about suffering because you've made a foolish decision to place yourself in a position where suffering was just inevitable. This is talking about when you are doing God's will and all of a sudden you start to get persecuted, this is how you need to respond. He says this, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And he says this, For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring glory to God and to bring you to God. Now, as we read this, we know that what the flesh can't do is respond to evil by blessing. What the flesh cannot do is produce good in the face of wickedness. And so, inherently, this passage assumes, or that's inherent in the passage, and the assumption is this, that Peter is speaking about a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in order to be able to get this done. In other words, this attitude and this response, this ability to bless in the face of curse, love in the face of hate, is a Spirit-inspired work in a believer's life. And as a result, it's a sign and it's evidence that you're a believer. This is what God calls everybody who knows him to do. And, and, and this is how he calls us to live. The command to respond to suffering in this way is not reserved for the spiritual elite. 
if there is even such a thing, or to those called to missions or full-time ministry or evangelism. This is, this is for every single believer, a requirement and a mandate that God has given us to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in the face of persecution and suffering. That's why Peter begins this section with the words, finally, all of you. Now, it's not the end of the book, so the word finally seems a little bit out of place, but it's just the end of a thought process for him. The previous chapters, he's been dealing with how we relate to one another and government and authorities above us and how we submit and respond to them with godliness. He, he's spoken about slaves and masters and how they relate to one another. He's spoken about husbands and wives and how they relate to one another and love one another and submit to one another, uh, no matter what circumstances you're facing. And now he's moving on. He's going, finally, also in this, also in suffering and in persecution, this is how you should respond. All of you do this. And what's amazing for me about what Peter starts to say is he doesn't start with how we should respond to the world immediately. What he begins to do is unpack. In verse 8, it's specifically reserved for Christians and the church and how we relate to one another in the home, our family. Like many things in the Christian walk, here's what Peter's saying. You need to be getting it right first with yourselves before you can step outside the walls of the church and expect to be getting it right there. That's what he's saying. He says, if we're expecting to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit outside on the world, where it actually really is tough, but we're not getting it right in the home first, how on earth are people outside meant to believe that we have what we say we have? It's the same principle in 1 Timothy 3, verse 5, where Paul is talking to Timothy about the requirements for eldership. He says, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? It's the same principle Peter's speaking about here. If we don't get it right with ourselves, if we can't love each other, if we can't live harmoniously with each other, how on earth are we going to be getting it right out there? And so Peter starts by challenging us, going, this is what you need to do. This is how you know the Spirit of God is at work within you, is when you exhibit this fruit and you do it together as a family first. He says, be like-minded. Harmony he's speaking about. He's saying, you know, be sympathetic towards one another. Be someone who loves and is affectionate towards your brothers, your sisters, your mothers, your fathers in the Spirit. Be compassionate and be humble. And these are things that Paul says we need to start to cultivate in our lives before we even begin to engage with the world around us. And that's the first place I believe God wants us to take a stop this morning is, is, is in this one verse and go, what is it that I'm getting right in my life and what is it that I need to pray and ask God to cultivate in me? Because if I want to be a person who engages with the world around me, I better be getting it right here first and in my own life before I expect someone else to be getting it right in their lives. You can just skip past the next one, the question. There was a question from Musenberg, but you can just go on. Jono? Skip. Cool. After verse 8, Peter moves on and he starts to unpack how we respond to the world. After he's dealt with us first and he's gone, hey, spend some time thinking about this. And that's a whole sermon in and of itself, but that's not the point of this message. But he moves on and he says, hey, out in the world... Don't repay evil for evil. Don't, don't repay insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. That doesn't mean we have to be a doormat. It just means that instead of 
necessarily giving people what they want. We give them what they need when God asks us to do it. And I think so often when we are faced with persecution, we think it's a victory when we've run away from punching somebody in the face. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you just know you're right and the other person's wrong and your heart intent was good, but now they're responding to you in an evil way. The flesh just wants to go, you need a fat smack. I don't know if that's maybe just me. And you, you want to respond by fighting fire with fire and evil with evil. And what ends up happening is become just like the person who responded to you in the first place with wicked intent. And we think it's a victory when we run away. And I think it's better than punching the person in the face. If you get home and you go, I exercised self-control and I didn't hit them. I think it's good. But Jesus says it can be even better. You supplement. You engage. You don't run away. You engage. And how do you engage? By bringing the opposite. He says, you want to win somebody for Jesus and they're being evil? You be righteous. If you want to win somebody for Jesus and they're persecuting you, you bless them. If they insult you, you love them. And that's just the way of the kingdom. Jesus says you begin to show them a different paradigm to responding to people. And by doing that, you glorify me. Remember, God, why do we have to keep doing this? Yes, your glory is great, but you're glorious enough. And Jesus goes, well, here's the thing. Peter writes, he says, you do this and you continue to do this because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Because it's part of what it means to be a Christian, to live this way. It's a life that leads to blessing and causes people to ask questions about your faith, which just might bring them into a place where they commit their lives to Jesus because of what they've seen in you. That's why. But for us, ultimately, it's just a blessing to live this way. And I think sometimes we get confused as to who the blessing comes from. Peter's not talking about being blessed by the other person, because I think sometimes we get disheartened, at least I've been disheartened, going to share the gospel with somebody, or being used to speak into somebody's life, and they don't respond the way that you expect them to respond. You know when you give somebody a gift, you don't really accept the gift back, but you actually want one back? And when they do, you're like, oh, you shouldn't have. But you're like, yeah. It's the same thing when sharing the gospel. We anticipate that when we share the most profound testimony ever, people are going to fall on their knees and go, Jesus, we want you. And when that doesn't happen, we're shocked and we go, oh, this really sucks. But that's sometimes because I think we place our hope in the way people respond to us or reciprocate our attitude towards them. But then Peter quotes Psalm 34, and he does it for two reasons. One, because it's following the logic, or Peter's following the logic of Psalm 34, as he begins to explain that a righteous life versus an evil life leads to blessing. And that's the other reason why Peter quotes it. Because in Psalm 34, it tells you exactly where your blessing comes from for living this way. Where does it come from? God. So what Peter's saying is, as long as you are doing this and living this way, the vertical is good. You and God are good. It doesn't matter what the horizontal is like or whether it changes, whether the person treats you badly. When you are responding to God in faith and with righteousness, despite adverse circumstances for preaching the gospel and being a Christian, you and God are good and he's going to bless you. That in and of itself is a blessing. 
regardless of what this relationship is like. There's a story of a young man who got a job, was working, and uh, his boss hated him. I was reading about it in preparation for this, and his boss hated him because his boss was an outright overt atheist, and he was a Christian, this young guy, and constantly persecuted and suffered in the workplace and often publicly rebuked amongst his colleagues by his boss. And this young man said, I'm going to decide to live this out in my life. I'm going to decide to bless where I'm cursed, love where I'm hated, and serve where I'm not served. He said it took a couple of months, but he started to see a change in his boss's life. And one day, he plucked up the courage uh, to go and ask for leave. And he didn't just ask for leave. He told his boss why he was going. He's like, I need leave because I'm going on a mission trip. And his boss not only said to him, sure, you can have the leave and some rest afterwards when you come back, but here's $1,000 to go with you. I mean, that is so good. But that's, that's not guaranteed, right? You need to know that. That's not guaranteed. And that's okay because our blessing doesn't come from people. When that happens, it's great. But even if that never happened, this young guy was saying, God and I are good. And that's okay. Responding to somebody this way is not about them and you. It's about you and God. It's about us being equipped to properly engage with the world outside in a way that shows the kingdom. And I tell you, if it's about you and somebody else, what you're going to end up doing is picking the people that you know are going to respond well to you. And it's selective ministry. And Jesus can say to you, hey, go and speak to this person. They really need you. And like, whoa, not that person. Oh, they never respond well to me. Jesus going, it's not about you and them. It's about you and me. Then Peter goes on and he, he encourages us. He goes, hey, if this is happening, just know that there's nothing else that you really need to worry about. There's nothing else that really needs to concern you. He says this in verse 13, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Now what Peter is not saying is that if you do good and are righteous and you love the Lord and the fruit of the Spirit is flowing out of you towards people, no matter how ugly they are to you, that all of a sudden persecution is going to stop and suffering is going to stop. He's not saying that by doing good you avoid suffering, but what he's saying is ultimately, who do you have to be afraid of? And I'll unpack it a little bit more now. Peter knows that by being righteous, it doesn't mean you're not going to suffer. In fact, sometimes for being more righteous and more godly and loving people more, you get more hurt. But what Peter's speaking about here is a principle found all through Scripture, and David writes about it in the Psalms, Psalm 56. He says, I trust in God, so why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? Now, we know what David's saying there. Mortals can take your life. They can really hurt you. They can rob you of life here. But ultimately, what David is saying is, I don't fear them because I trust in God. They can't rob me of him. They can't rob me of my eternity. They can't rob me of my blessing from God. And so, of who should I be afraid? It says in Romans 8, same principle. For if God is with us, who can be against us? The whole world, in a sense, is against the gospel and against us. But there are moments where the kingdom breaks through and Jesus has victory through us and his people. So nobody's ultimately going to be able to hurt you when you are right with God and we're living lives of righteousness empowered by the Spirit. 
because they can't take the most important thing away from you. And that should be so deeply encouraging to us. Reminds me probably of one of the worst motivational speaks, preaches or messages Jesus ever gave to his disciples. Right? You think Jesus was a great motivator? I just don't know if I would have been motivated after this. In Matthew chapter 10, it's not going to come up here. The context, Jesus is preparing his disciples for ministry. He's saying, you guys are going to go out and you're going to go preach the word. You're going to go make disciples of all nations. You're going to have victory and you're going to be like sheep. And they're like, yeah, we're going to be like sheep. Rock on. And then he says, and the people you're going to, they're going to be like wolves. They're like, oh, man, sucks. They're going to be like wolves and they're going to devour you and rip you to pieces. And you're going to go from one city to the next. And when you get to that city, there's going to be some people that accept you, but most of them are going to hate you, and they're going to persecute you. And then what you need to do is dust off the sand, the, the sand from your shoes, go to the next city, and you're going to be persecuted there. And guess what? While this is all happening, and your family find out about it, they're going to disown you. You're not going to come back to our home. Your mother and your father are going to hate you. Your brothers and sisters are going to hate you. Sounds really cool. Jesus is like, you're going to get beaten and killed. Bah. That's where we are. But then after all of that, right, after all of that, Jesus somewhat softens the blow. And he goes, but don't really worry. I don't know what you would be thinking at that point, but Jesus is like, don't, just, it's okay. And I'll tell you why it's Okay. You don't have to be afraid of them because they aren't ones who can kill the body and the soul. Here's who you really need to be afraid of. Instead, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The only one who can touch the soul is God. Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of the Father. And even the very hairs on your head are numbered, so do not be afraid. You are worth far more than sparrows. Here's what Jesus is saying. You need to expect to be persecuted. You need to expect, you need to be expecting to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And you need to suffer well. With the right attitude. Because that brings glory to God. And this smashes our paradigm of what it means to be a Christian and what kingdom means in this world. Because almost every Christian in contemporary Christianity, is striving towards a conflict-free, persecution-free, happy, comfortable life. And Jesus says, maybe, just maybe, this is not about you, and there's something more powerful at work in your life that perhaps means you need to be suffering in order for Jesus to be seen. And that doesn't mean we wish it upon ourselves. That doesn't mean we go looking for it. It just means we need to know it's going to happen. And when it does, we've got to be prepared with the right attitude. Because that's how you engage the world. Because that's how they're going to engage us. Peter encourages the same way Jesus says. He says, don't be afraid of their threats. Don't be frightened. In verse 15, he says, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Why? Because by fearing God, you've got nothing else to fear even though you may have to suffer some grievous bodily harm for the sake of the kingdom. And you go, what, that didn't happen? Yes, it did, often, and it is still happening. Just because it doesn't happen in our Western culture doesn't mean it's not happening around the world daily. And then Peter draws our attention to this amazing truth. 
He says, when we engage with people this way, when we bless them, when they curse us, when we love them, when they hate us, he says, what starts to happen there is it becomes a testimony to that person and to those around us of the goodness of God and the power of God at work within you. And people are going to start to ask questions. That's why he says this. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Living that way is going to cause people to wonder about you. And when they realize you're not mad and clinically insane and that there is some power at work within you that is supernatural and divine, it's going to cause interest. And then that sets you up on this platform to be able to preach the gospel. And guys, that is not coming with wise and persuasive words. That is coming with the demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God within you. That's what God says we need to do. Our attitude in suffering is so important. Our attitude towards persecution and other people's evil is so important because it says something about the power and the glory and the hope that we have in God. Peter says we do this and we need to be ready to do this because this attitude and this response to people is a recipe for engagement with the world. And when people ask us to give a, an account for why we're doing what we're doing, we need to respond to them, it says, with gentleness and respect. You don't go do a whole bunch of good stuff and respond in a really godly way and ask God for the, for the ability to, to treat somebody well who's hating on you. And then when they ask you, why do you have such a hope or what's up with you? You go, you idiot, it's because I'm a Christian. Haven't you seen that? He says you do this with gentleness and respect, keep, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you, and there will be plenty of those people, and against your good behavior in Christ, they may be ashamed of their slander. And some people through being shamed are gonna come to a place of humility and submission to Christ as Lord of their lives and enter in as a brother and a sister of the kingdom with you. Imagine the conversations you have with people. Imagine you're being persecuted and people are really hating you. And you start loving them and you start blessing them. And they go, why do you do this? And they go, well, because you say to them, this is because it's my calling. They're like, what do you mean it's your calling? You're going to continue to do this no matter how ugly I am to you, no matter how ugly they are to you? And you respond with this, yes. Because that's what God did for me. And all I'm doing is giving back to people what God gave to me when I was doing that to him. You're really not going to change if I don't change or they don't change and they keep persecuting you. Yeah, I'm really not going to change because my hope is in the Lord and my blessing comes from Jesus, not in man. And so you don't change if you don't want to, but I'm not going to change because you won't. Me and God, we're good. And I'm going to be obedient to my king. Imagine those conversations. You know, if I think about how powerful these encounters are, it's almost like, and I'm going to say some stuff that might freak you out, all right? Come and talk to me afterwards. It's going to maybe shift some of your paradigms when it comes to the kingdom and what to expect. It's almost like God has got these moments planned. It's almost like there's something so powerful about these moments when we suffer as Christians that God actually wills them to happen. 
Here's what Peter says. He drops this bombshell, and I can't help but go here. He says this in verse 17, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good as opposed to doing evil. Have you ever thought about how we see the Christian life playing itself out? Most of us spend our lives doing anything and everything we can, avoiding conflict and persecution with the outside world. We refuse to engage because we know it's going to be tough. So we're just happy to live in our Christian bubble. We even get angry with God when he allows persecution for the sake of preaching the gospel. We get indignant with him. God, how can you allow this to happen? I stepped out in faith. I was persecuted. Somebody mocked me. Are you even really there, God? Our perception of the perfect life is persecution and confrontation free. Where we've lost nothing but gained everything in this world and in the next. But what happens if, guys, I'm just asking the question, what happens if what happens to us in this life is far bigger than we ever imagined it to be, even in the small moments? What happens if those moments are so powerful, those moments where we treat somebody well who mistreats us, those moments where we bless somebody who curses us, what happens if those moments are so powerful where we love somebody who hates us or we care for the needs of somebody who cares nothing for ours? What happens if they're so powerful in winning people to the kingdom and displaying the glory of God that God actually wants those times to happen? What happens if, what are we going to say if that is really what's on the heart of God? And it's not like God's just allowing it in our lives because he desires for us to suffer for some odd reason or because he has some malicious intent towards us or because he wants us to suffer for the sake of suffering. What happens if those moments, like I've said, are so powerful that what's in the life of a believer during persecution when it comes out is so glorious that God wants it to be seen, but the only way that it can come out is when we engage with the world and are persecuted. Do you know what we need for that gem to come out? Do you know what we need for gold ore to be refined into gold? A lot of crushing, a lot of heat, a lot of breaking, a lot of smashing. And then the gold is revealed. Coal has to be ex exposed to enormous amounts of pressure to form a diamond. What happens if those moments of suffering when we engage with the world are moments that are so powerful that God wants them to be the way that they are? I think for many of us, we run away from engaging with the world because we're scared to be persecuted. And Jesus is going, it's in persecution and suffering that the glory of God through your attitude is seen and people are one for Jesus. I know that that's tough to get our heads around. But what happens if the Christian life actually isn't about you? What happens if living for Jesus really isn't about you and your comfort? What happens if living the Christian life is about the glory of God? What happens if living the Christian life is about you going, Jesus, I've died to myself and my needs, now you have your way, even if that means I lose my life for the sake of the gospel? We think prosperity wins people. The prosperity movement and the prosperity gospel makes me sick to my stomach. 
Do you know that it's only Christians who are impressed with rich Christians? The world is not impressed with rich Christians. It sickens them as much as it sickens like other people. And I'm not talking about having wealth. I'm talking about exorbitant wealth that's on display for everybody to see and is not being used for the kingdom. I'm not talking about God blessing Christians with money so that they can be a blessing. God, let that continue to happen, I pray. I'm not talking about successful Christian businessmen or women. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about Christians having a lot of money and managing it well. I'm talking about the pursuit of the gospel for the sake of money. We think the outside world is going to be drawn into the church because we flash money around. I'm not saying we, we, royal we, universal church around the world. But what happens if the world is more attracted to the way we engage with them when it comes to persecution and suffering? What happens if that wins people for the kingdom more than the amount of money we have or more than the promise of a blessed life that we so often just throw out there? Come to Jesus, it's gonna be okay. Everything's gonna be good, your life's gonna be great. You're gonna have no debt, no suffering, nothing, no illness, nothing's gonna go wrong. Come to Jesus. If we're always treated nicely and we respond to people nicely who treat us nicely, of what use is that and what good is that? Even wicked people do that. Is it possible that God has appointed for us a time in our lives where we would suffer so that the glory of God can be seen and people go, this is alien. This is different. And you go, yeah, because I'm from a different place. My inheritance is in a different kingdom, and my king has told me how to live here so that you can see the wonders of his kingdom through my life. Some of you go, well, is there even scriptural precedent for this? I can think of at least one person who this happened to. Just one. Some people, the bell's starting to ring. Who was it? in the scriptures that sets a scriptural precedent for us that suffering for the sake of others is a glorious thing. Jesus. Jesus. You might have heard of him. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane is sweating blood literally because of the agony he's about to face. And when they come to arrest him, Peter comes out, this guy, Peter, chops off someone's ear. And Jesus goes, that's not the way. Let me just pick this ear back up and heal you quickly. Peter is rebuked by Jesus again. And Jesus says, this is not the way. Do you not think I could have come and defended myself with an army of angels if this is the way it was supposed to happen? This is my Father's will. And Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane says, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me, this cup of suffering. He wasn't having a cup of coffee he didn't like. It was this cup of suffering that he was about to endure. And God doesn't take it away. Why? So that we could be blessed. If that suffering wasn't endured by Jesus, we would not be here. What happens if your attitude in suffering and your exposure to persecution and suffering is the reason why 
someone else comes into the kingdom, would you be okay with that? Is your life and your suffering and the way you respond in suffering, is it worth even just one person's life? And this is the question we've got to ask ourselves because we're afraid to engage with the world because we're going to suffer. I think of another person, not as great of an example, but Paul. Paul boasts in his sufferings. He says this, Jesus says this about him. Some of the guys had heard that Paul had come to faith and they were like, whoa, this is the guy who stoned Stephen and was part of, part of the stoning of Stephen and he's been persecuting us for a long time and Jesus says, don't worry about it. He says this, but not in a malicious way. He says, Paul, don't worry about Paul. I'm going to have to show him and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. For some of us, that doesn't sound like a Jesus we know. But Jesus is concerned about our character, our eternity, and how we are willing to be used by him for the glory of his name. And I just want to say this, church, sometimes that's going to mean enduring suffering for the sake of the gospel. And our attitude is incredibly important. I want to end with this this evening. It is hard to be a witness. It really is. No one's denying that. It's not nice to get persecuted and to be in a tough place and to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And again, I want to clarify this. This doesn't mean we can't be sad, we can't be hurt, we can't be frustrated, we can't be angry. But it's how we respond and how we deal with it and the perspective we have in the midst of suffering that's important. And then we have to think about that last verse, verse 18. It says, for Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And this is what we have to do. We've got to close our eyes and imagine our sins, our unrighteousness, then Christ's righteousness and his sacrifice and suffering for the sake of many, including ourselves. And then we've got to take that a step further and go, now close your eyes and imagine someone else's unrighteousness toward you, someone else's hatred toward you because of the gospel. And then you've got to imagine your righteousness being displayed despite their response to you and their attitude towards you. And then you've got to imagine, because of your response, them coming to know Jesus. Wow. Wow. So here's what I pray for us. And if you could close your eyes, we're going we're to pray together. Father, I pray that you would grant us the grace, the Spirit, to suffer well, to be persecuted and to have the greatest of intentions and ability to fulfill them for the kingdom. By responding to persecution and tough times, God, with the right attitude, with love instead of hate, with blessing instead of curse, with kindness instead of wickedness, with hope instead of despair, For the glory of your name and the sake of others, Jesus, I pray for that. God, help us not to be terrified of the world. God, help us not to run, but to stand and engage in a godly way. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill us to overflowing. Empower us. And may we say, as Paul said in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? Lord, I pray that this church is filled, filled to overflowing, that you would add to our number daily 
those who are being saved because of the way this community of believers engages with the world, regardless of how they engage with us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'm going to ask Tammy and the team to come up and just feeling like we need to respond to God.